Hi, everyone. You are listening to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Andrew. Located in Western Oregon, the Coast Range Association works to build just and sustainable communities that provide for people in the natural world. You can reach me at andrew at coastrange.org. To hear past episodes of Coast Range Radio, go to coastrange.org slash coastrangeradio. You can also download and subscribe to Coast Range Radio on your podcast service of choice. Today we share our interview with Oregon educator John Borowski. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, and I hope everyone's doing well out there, um, staying cool, staying healthy, staying safe. It's a intense time right now, and um, we're still continuing on. Coast Range Radio is still doing interviews with uh, dedicated and inspiring folks all around Oregon working on the intersections of uh, forests and climate change and, and social justice. Today, I'm really happy to be speaking with John Borowski. John is a longtime uh, marine environmental science uh, educator uh, here in Oregon. Hey, John, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Coast Range Radio. My pleasure. Just wanted to uh, kind of set the stage here. We're, uh, the reason I reached out to you um, is uh, in prompting of the recent OPB Oregonian article that came out uh, in regard to OFRI, the Oregon Forest Resources Institute, and uh specifically their outsized influence in Oregon's um, public schools and science education. Um, but first, I wanted to just maybe uh, allow you to, to uh, maybe uh, introduce yourself and, and explain your, your experience in, um, or, or a story of your experience working in Oregon's uh, schools, teaching vitally important marine and environmental education that, um, that you've dedicated your life to. Uh, Trish and I and the, our two girls moved out here in 90, and... I had seen the documentary Rage Over Trees, which was about Opal Creek, and we had some family out here, and we decided we had to move out here. I had been teaching nine years up to that point, environmental science, in a school in New Jersey. And when I got out here to Oregon, I was lucky enough to be able to teach, again, environmental science and earth science and uh, marine science. But early on in my career here, back in the 90s, when I took a job at North Salem High School, I noticed that the prior teacher had left a bunch of his materials, I guess imagining I could use it. And I was really blown away by the amount of industry-produced curriculum. Uh, particularly um, Exxon material, downplaying the spill, the Exxon Valdez spill of 89. And they gave a lot of corporate viewpoints. Someone who loves forests as much as me, I always incorporated forest ecology in my ecology classes. And I wanted to do more research. You know, what does Oregon have to offer? teachers and students about education on these issues. And I came to find out by, once again, the mid-90s the mid and late-90s that there was this plethora of you know, the American Forest Foundation and Project Learning Tree. Has some great has some great ideas, but I say it's guilty of the worst in omission. It's, it's such a a complex story because you have to put a lot of things together. 
you have to realize that high school teachers, bio, chemistry, physics, anatomy, they are not trained in environmental science, ecology. That's not part of their prerequisite. And that's not an insult. I mean, teaching biology is hard enough. Teaching chemistry is hard enough. The timber industry, like many industries, came along and said, we can fill a void here. Man, this is a great opportunity. So as I said, I've got Project Learning Tree. They, they give some good activities. It's not in-your-face, pro-timber propaganda. Most of the time, it's what they don't talk about. You know, for example, if you're going to teach about Western Oregon forests, you're going to teach about the succession from alder all the way up to hemlock. You know, you're going to talk about all the structural aspects of nurse logs and snags, you know, the lands that forest soils need to, to regenerate. Those things are not discussed at all in these curriculums. You know, uh, alders, one of the most magnificent trees in the forest, you know, pumps nitrates into the soil. Well, people who know a little bit about timber management know that the alder is a weed. Pretty, a pretty sad thing to call a plant that's essential for, you know, the health of the rest of the forest succession, particularly dug firs. So what do we do? We spray them uh, with herbicides. That's never discussed. What's never discussed is short rotation forestry. This concept of we're replanting a forest is simply a lie. We're replanting a monoculture year after year. And these curriculums don't talk about that adverse effect um, from a wildlife habitat to carbon sequestration to uh, other critical issues like watershed issues. One of the first things I always did with students with forest ecology is I said, you know, let's talk about here's, here's a native forest over a thousand years. Here's a tree farm over 30, 40 years. You tell me the differences. What do you see? And the, and the kids were amazed. You know, how come we were never taught this before? We're taught, you know, for every one tree cut, there's four or five planted. And Oregon now has more trees than it ever did. Well, it may have more trees, but it has less forests. About the Oregon Forest Resource Institute, I had received materials for them uh, back in the 90s. But I recently looked up their high school curriculum. They put together a 300-page high school curriculum, which I believe is <clears throat> supposed to be done over a 13-week period. Right off the top, you see the major focus is on extraction. You see things that should be discussed in much greater detail. You know, the concept of biomass, you know, based on what I know in science, the concept of burning trees to make energy is, is sheer insanity. You know, we're not talking about somebody with a wood-burning stove in Philomath. You know, we're talking about, you know, the, the industrial power plants. That's, that's just a disaster for the forest and the climate. But the thing here is, going back to what I said a few moments ago, particularly if you're a young teacher and you come into high school and the biology book has you know, four or five chapters that you do teach on ecology before you move into, uh, into traditional biology, cells, and genetics. And you're saying, wow, you know, I don't, I don't feel that comfortable with this material. How can I make it more realistic? Who comes to your rescue? 
Oregon Forest Resources Institute. And I've had discussion with teachers where I say, do you ever talk about the downsides of industrial forestry? How close they cut to, to rivers? How many secondary and tertiary creeks are cut right over? Do you ever talk about herbicides? I know you probably remember, I mean, uh, uh, Bonnie Hill out in Alsea, she was famous for exposing forest aerial spraying when they were still using components of Agent Orange. Where's that discussion in these, in these curricula? Where's the discussion of, of exporting trees off of federal land? And I know people say, oh, there's a law. You can't, you can't export these trees. Well, sure you can. You put in one or two cuts called a cant. Magically, it goes from a huge log to a processed log because you put a cut in it. So all these caveats and exceptions are, are not discussed. And particularly now with the COVID situation and a lot of seasoned teachers looking possibly to actually quit their jobs or retire early, man, the timber industry is going to have this young group of, of, of teachers, which I'm not making light of young teachers, but your growth as a teacher in the first 10, 15 years is incredible how much more you accumulate. And, and <clears throat> teachers are isolated. And all of a sudden, you're stressed and Oregon Forest Resources Institute can give you a 300-page manual. And remember something. These manuals have all state standards mentioned all throughout them. So a principal could come in and say, you know, why are you using this? Oh, look. Look all the state standards this thing meets. That's the real sophistication of that material. I, you know, you don't want to use too strong a words. Oh, John Borowski, you tree hugger, you're so outspoken. Give the kids the truth, you know, but all this smoke and mirrors, all these things that you refuse to discuss. And now you are selling teachers a bill of goods, particularly when they're not able to have more ecologically and environmentally centered discussions. To be honest, that 300-page manual, to me, and I only went over it for a short time, looks like you want to turn our students into uh, to forest managers. That's not the intent of education. So, okay, I have a question. How, how do these materials get into our schools? How do, is, it, is there not a, some sort of um, review process or, or no prioritization of how, you know, that fair and balanced science information gets into our schools. How does this get through? That's, that's, I think one of the greatest myths about school is that this is a highly regulated, uh, hierarchy where, you know, people, the head of the science and history department, they go through your materials and they give it a up, you know, up or down vote. So much of this material can come via right through the mail. So it goes straight from who, who made it to the teacher. I, I had never gone to a National Science Teachers Convention. Every year in this country, 12 to 14,000 teachers go to what's called the National Science Teacher Convention. I think there's four regionals and one big centralized 
meeting every year. I had never gone to one. And I was told, John, you got to go there. All this free material, great ideas. And I had gone to the first one in 99 in Las Vegas. 14 acres of displays. 14 acres. And I'm reading the manual, and it says, here's where you'll find an environmental street. I'm, I'm, I'm in my glory. And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to find like-minded people searching for materials that will make my class even better. And I get there, it's Warehouser and the Temperate Forest Foundation and um, the coal industry, the nuclear energy industry. It was it was mind-boggling. You know, coal-coloring books for elementary school kids. Warehouser giving out free posters and and free seedlings and curriculum, Project Learning Tree, uh, which I have gone back and forth with for years. Once again, <clears throat> some solid teaching materials, standards are met, but it has such a pro-timber bias. And the things that they decide to leave out are so, so blatant. But once again, Ask most people, oh, do you know that many clear cuts are sprayed after after the clear cut to kill boulders? They, they have no clue what you're talking about. <clears throat> so Project Learning Tree is in every state in the country. They have outreach programs. They have summer programs. So much of this is between the individual teacher and that organization. And then that teacher brings that material back and says, hey, you know, I can spice up my curriculum. Uh, who's going to know? You know, uh, teachers observed a few times a year. So that's that. That see that that's the thing. I, I think industry has really made this incredibly smart move uh, from the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I, I used to get materials debunking uh, climate change right in my mail. You know, you go to these conferences. You can pick up, you know, the Greening Earth Society, uh, the Heritage Foundation, Heartland Institute, all with these anti-environmental perspectives. You're a teacher, you say, well, I mean, why would they allow these people here? Well, because they paid big money to be at the conference. And, you know, it's not a conspiracy. It's a wise use of their money to indoctrinate the next generation of, of students. We're talking about 60 million kids in K through 12 public schools. My question to the big, the big greens, Audubon, National Wildlife Federation, Greenpeace, right down the line, why aren't you doing the same thing? And here's the difference. You don't have to sell the kids a bill of goods. You just give them the straight science. They'll figure it out. And I've been blow, I've been blown off so many times by those organizations. John, we have more immediate concerns, and I say to them, "What's what's not immediate about 60 million kids getting propaganda, and you're sending me a subscription for a glossy magazine? I I mean, you really have to consider where your investment should be, particularly with you know young kids. See." Here, here, here in Philomath, Project Learning Tree works with a local private landowner, Starker Forest, 
They have tours. <clears throat> they have tours out at their uh, tree farm and headquarters, Corvallis, and then they can set up trips to their numerous properties, uh, particularly in the Coast Range and on the way to the Coast Range. I saw one of a uh, an exercise that was given out by Starker Forest, and it's for ele- elementary school kids. You know, hey, kids, there's 30 kids in the class. Hey, let's all stand up. Put your arms far out as you can. Let's pretend we're forest. You know, and their little kids are giggling. They're poking each other in the head, you know. And then the teacher says, well, you know, let's have, you know, 25 of you sit down. Call out the names. They all sit down. The others, the other trees, you keep standing. All right, you standing trees, how do you feel now that all these other little trees are, are gone? Oh, I feel better. Oh, I have more space. Obviously, <laughs> what is that? That's nothing more than propaganda for, for thinning. You, you know, um, back in the day, I went down to the biscuit timber sale, the famous biscuit timber sale, and I made a PowerPoint about forest ecology. And there I'm seeing three-and-a-half-foot trees on the ground perfectly healthy. And there I'm seeing these poles that have died that could have been thin to help forest health. You know, and I guess lastly, and I, I don't know if I'm completely right on this, so you may have to correct me or people can send me angry emails. I think the Oregon Forest Resource Institute has a board of 11 people, and and I think nine of them are are pretty pretty strongly involved in the timber industry. So to say that the timber industry doesn't have a tremendous say, if not the only say in what's going out from them, is not being honest. You know, it, it's, it's obvious that this organization is more interested in timber propaganda. And, and you got to remember something. I'm going to step back. I live in a community of timber people good, hard-working loggers, I have, I have no beef with them, none. Who I have a beef with are those who, corporate folks who cut and run in our communities, who fund this outright propaganda because they want to continue business as usual. And we can't. We can't. We have to look to forest to be, you know, a bigger part of the restoration of a planet, be it, you know, CO2 uptake or storing rain, you know, biodiversity, more habitat. I mean, those are cradles of evolution. People say, oh, that sounds so noble. No, it's not. You know, we need we need continuous habitat for species to exist, you know, not these little islands of um, trees left behind surrounded by big clear cuts. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. There's uh, eleven positions in the in Ofri uh, board positions, and they're all uh, timber representatives or in in the forest industry. There's a pu- there's a public representative ex officio, and on their website, I'm looking at it right now, currently it's vacant. One position that's a public representative. Also, reading that um, article, you know, there's there's a specific. Uh, parameter that you they can't there can be no conservation organizations on in the representation hey there wow there there's there's an all-inclusive group really concerned about the education of our kids right i mean that to me that says that says it all yeah and you know people say you don't have to be a bull in a china shop well i tell you what i walk the clear cuts uh around 
where I live. I live right by the Sioux National Forest. And I drive out to the coast because I like to go crabbing and I like to go in the tide pools. And there's still massive clear cuts. There's still clear cuts that have been replanted that you don't even see ferns growing in. So I don't know what they're spraying it with, but, and this is right adjacent to streams that that feed into rivers. You know, we're we're at this crucial time with, with climate change, and we should be giving young adults who grow up into be, you know, responsible, ecologically conscious voters, all the all the the data they need to make wise choices. Yeah, I got a quick question on that. You you know, working in these uh, timber communities, how do you how do you communicate that with the how do you interact with and communicate with these folks who maybe work in the timber industry or rural communities and you know share this this important information? It's it's such a tricky thing that we're trying to wrap our heads around. What is some of your insight? Maybe well. Like, you know something. Yeah. Uh, there are many environmentalists who, you know, pontificate about things, you know, and they have a four thousand square foot and a redwood deck and a hot tub, and obviously that doesn't jive with this guy who's getting up at four thirty to get on the crummy to go out, you know, to hook up logs to drag up a up a hill. I bring up my own blue collar background. I started off as a steel worker. You know, my dad was a tool and die maker. I guess a good example would be, uh, I went out to the, a coast range association, a get together. It was about a hundred people there and Chuck Wheeler had speakers and I started to speak and this guy jumped up in the audience and he says, Oh, so you, you care more about trees than you do loggers. And he, you know, he put me on the spot and being an old Jersey boy, I had to respond quickly. I said, I'll tell you what, if you can tell me that Warehouser and Boise Cascade and International Paper care more about you and your family and your community than their profits, I'll stop talking. And he looked at me and said, okay, I'll, I'll sit down. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an us versus them. It really doesn't. I mean, there's there's a ton of work that has to be done in the forest. And I know people hate hearing no forest red, uh, restoration, but it has to be done. You know, thinning some areas that are way overstocked, doing stream restoration and river restoration. There's there's a lot of work out there. Uh, but I think I I, I think that uh, we need some more blue collar environmentalism that we see people as part of the solution, that they're not, they're not obstacles. They're people making a living. And I understand that my dad lost his job of 29 years and seven months, lost his pension when the company that made all the uh, products moved to Kentucky to get away from New Jersey's strict environmental uh, water pollution laws. They were putting mercury in the Passaic River. And initially, my dad said to me, environmentalists, they took away, you know, my job. Now look at us, you know, and we had, we had a couple of really bad years. But later in life, Pop said to me, he goes, you know, John, I got to tell you something. I was wrong. I said, what are you talking about, Pop? He says, when we had, when our company left, 
It wasn't the environmentalists' fault. They were right. I mean, we we were poisoning the water for what? And then my company goes and leaves and goes to Kentucky and leaves us all in the lurch. We all lost our jobs. So he was proud of me because I think he he saw that I cared about common people. Now, I'm just going to plug something really quickly. If environmentalists don't reach out to blue-collar people and people of color, they're just going to continue to spin their wheels. You know, I, I, won, I won an award to go back <clears throat> to Philadelphia, an environmental award, and they brought the, the – uh, the people who set up the award said, we'd like you to go speak to some kids in Philadelphia. And they brought me into this inner city school, like uh, a, a tough place, like where I grew up. And I heard one of the teachers say, this guy is not going to last five minutes. And I got up and here I am talking about a, a bunch of uh, forest issues with urban kids. <clears throat> and I, stra- I, I stressed, hey, you know, they contain medicines that your mom may use when she gets breast cancer. And, hey, they're your forests. You pay for them. And they were fired up. And, and we talked for an hour and a half. And, you know, one of the teachers said to me, oh, how'd you do that? I said, I talked to them as human beings, that they have a vested interest in what happens in Oregon, just like I have a vested interest in what happens in an incinerator in Philadelphia. You know, that's where you put it all together. And then you don't get this, this, this class warfare. But see, that's another thing corporations do a good job of, you know, us versus them. You know, and that's, you know, the whole, you know, who's more important, an owl or a human being? I told people at conference, if my kids were starving, I'd eat the owl. But hopefully we don't get to that position. So I hope you can put out there to your listeners that the green the green groups got to get involved and quickly to counter this stuff. I totally agree, John. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's uh, that's super important, and thank you for making that point so clearly. Um, and thank you for all your work in Oregon schools and, and bringing a, a attention to these issues. And so it's something I think it kind of goes under the radar. People don't realize just how easy it is for these, um, you know, wealthy, powerful um, individuals, corporations easily get into our schools, easily influence curriculum and easily influence our, our students and, and kids. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Is there anything you wanted to uh, touch on before before we go? Anything you, we missed? The only thing I would touch on is I would say uh, wherever this radio station goes out to there are lots of people in the community who could volunteer to go in and give a lesson on tree identification or forest soils you have a big audience of people who love the forest and they should realize schools are are dying to have people come in who know this data to talk about salmon and old growth habitat so you're local community members must realize they can be a big part of the solution too. They can help combat this, particularly in elementary school. That's where it's crucial. Second, third, fourth, fifth grade, the kids are sponges. And if you go give a presentation about salmon or let's identify all the tree types out here in the coast range, I'll guarantee that the majority of those kids will remember that for the rest of their life.
that's the hope. I think you're totally right. The thinking back to my education, my third and fourth grade teacher did that just that, brought us out learning about salmon, learning about the environment, and uh, it was uh, life-changing. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you so much, and um, I look forward to speaking with you some more. All right, thanks again for the honor. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Coast Range Radio. We'll check you next time.